Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Welcome to the fourth season of Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part one of Openers, where we will curate a mixtape featuring some of the greatest opening tracks to appear on an album. Welcome back. Welcome back. Season four. Hard to believe that we've already come this far. Um, Hard to believe it's spring already. That too. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, and it's beautiful outside. It is. It is. Can't beat it. Um, Yeah. Openers. We, We thought what better way to open season four than to look at the opening tracks of classic vinyl and... We're going to break a couple of our, our long-standing rules on this one. We, we actually are going to use songs that have previously been selected for, for other podcast episodes. Generally, we, we try to never repeat a song, but this time, if we're really talking our favorites and what we consider to be the best opening tracks, well, you, you've got to throw in a few selections that have been previously previously used so but if i'm not mistaken the two well i you know season one right well i i started i i looked uh a a bit closer well we actually have four oh really we actually have four yeah um we have i don't want (laughs) to i don't want to list them them, yeah yeah i know there are are definitely two you had one and i had one but yeah we've amassed about how many songs have we amassed in in three seasons oh good well the first season was 20 episodes each and we had well you don't do the math online i just right, right. i know you finally built a spreadsheet so we could keep track of oh, all this stuff that's true <laughs> i could i could cheat let me let me see i'm curious how many songs we've we've gone with that well, while he's looking i'll make an announcement here at the top of the uh, the show that we have decided to experiment with yet another new i shouldn't say format but but timing of release of content um, you know where our seasons went from spring until fall and then we took a, a big break in the winter time we are thinking about instead of having two episodes per month in a smaller season window that we would go one episode a month year round so we'll see how that goes we'll see if that because uh, it, it, it's tough uh, I know when I listen to a podcast and I'm enjoying it and you know you take a hiatus for six months it's a little disappointing so maybe we'll keep it consistent that's, yeah ab- oh absolutely and no off season you know, it's just we'll we'll just keep going. Um, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, actually, yeah, I, I'm, I think it'll be really nice just to every, every month deliver a new two part episode. I'm looking forward to it. We have through Valentine's Day, we have used 1,017 <laughs> songs. <laughs> um, so over over 1,000 songs before we repeated tracks, which we're doing doing for this we hit the millennial mark that's incredible we have um but already i know looking at 
the episodes uh, ahead of us, we, you know, our our standing rule still stands. Where we're only making the exception for this time, um, and I, I, I have no regrets because I think this. I, I, I say this a lot, but I really mean it this time. I mean it every time. <laughs> but but I, I was looking through the, the tracks that you and I both selected for this for this particular mixtape. This may be the best collection of music we've ever thrown together. I mean, it, these are just iconic songs, every one of them. Um, so the audience may not agree with our picks, but they certainly can't argue the validity of the the tracks that we've selected certainly and i don't know about your criteria specifically but my criteria it had to be not only a great opening song and the song itself is great but i chose albums that are great albums as well there i'm sure are some albums out there that are mediocre but have a great opening song probably hundreds of those absolutely Um, but i wanted to make sure that not only was the song great but the whole album is just a classic album from the rock era Yep, I, I did the same. I, I tried, uh, now I wasn't successful with every pick, but I tried to pick a, an, from albums where the opening track kind of feeds into, not not quite a concept album, but, but more, it, almost like a narrative. You know, it, it kind of opens into the album and every song thereafter kind of feeds organically into the next. Yes, yes. Um, and I... I Succeeded for the most part, but there are a couple tracks I don't think that's true. I think that's part of what makes it a great opening song, though, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I I can't, could not disagree. Um, Yeah, no, it's just, I don't know. I I really am impressed with what we have, and hopefully our listeners will be too. Now that we've built it up so much, let's disappoint everybody, shall we? (laughs) Absolutely, that's what I live for, yes. All right, well, you have the first pick. I do, and my first selection this week it comes from the album Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John. It is actually two songs. I do this a couple of times uh, this time around. It's actually two songs together, Funeral for a Friend and Love Lies Bleeding. It is just, for me, a very powerful opening. That that instrumental, uh, you know, it just it, it builds to to this huge crescendo, and then here comes Elton, you know, with the the lyrics for "Love Lies Bleeding." I I just 
I, this gets me every time. And you caught him on tour this time, right? Yep. As did I. Eventually, I saw him twice on this tour, and I, I he, he well. plays he plays this live, which I was shocked. It was the highlight of the show for me. Yeah. No, I agree. You know, Elton actually wrote the music for this song, uh, according to interviews, after thinking about what he would want played at his own funeral, mm. which I found really interesting. Uh, parts of it are very dirge-like. I mean, understandably, it runs eleven minutes eight seconds. And it opens, of course, with Funeral for a Friend. Um, it transitions into Love Lies Bleeding. These two songs, they, they're they listed as one track, of course, but they, they do have separate credits. And there's no official delineation as to where one track ends and, and the other begins. Um, but the song starts the journey on, on Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And, of course, that's, uh, you know, a, a double album um, in itself. So it's a masterwork by Elton, which is pretty high praise because at this point in his career, he was, uh, he, he, he didn't miss. I mean, no, every album I think was, this is the finest record. It, oh, I, I agree. And the whole imagery of the Yellow Brick Road going on a journey, right? So this yeah. is the song that gets us onto the journey, the first step on the Yellow Brick Road. Yep, yep. And the song, you know, it starts that journey, as you say, Um and it's a slow build fading up from silence with an ethereal soundscape that plays for 30 seconds before the synthesizer notes come in. It fades back down at a minute 40, which is when Elton's piano arrives, soon joined by drums, guitar, bass, and, and more synth. Elton doesn't start singing on this track until five minutes, 49 seconds. Um, so over five minutes of just instrumentation. Which explains why it wasn't a radio hit. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very powerful introduction to a very substantial album. Goodbye Yellow Rick Road is Elton's best-selling studio album still today and one that influenced generations of musicians. It, it had plenty of hits. I mean, Benny and the Jets, the title track, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. It also had a number of other tracks that endured his favorites in Elton's live shows and on AOR format radio. All the Girls Love Alice, Grey Seal, Candle in the Wind. Bernie Toppin called the Love Lies Bleeding lyric a statement of what touring and rock and roll does to the family life. At the time, he was married to his first wife, Maxine Feebleman. And since this song is over 11 minutes long, you're right, it was never released as a single. Still, it became a very popular song on AOR format, album-oriented rock on FM radio, partly because, and you and I, you and I were on radio, we, we know how this works, it wasn't played very often, but more importantly, it gave DJs a chance to take a bathroom break or to go out and smoke a, a cigarette. You know, anytime you can find a song that is over 10 minutes, it, it's DJ's best friend. Yes. So there were a couple, I think, album side <laughs> songs that we played. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every, every, uh, <laughs> Genesis Supper is ready, and uh, there's an Allman Brothers one in there. It wasn't there that. Uh, oh, oh. There, 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 there are so many. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we were, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I smoked a few too many cigarettes in my college years. So yeah, I, I, I we were in that we were in that little uh, area between, you couldn't smoke indoors, right? Uh, but people were still smoking at the time, so it was this, this kind of <laughs> middle ground in the nineties. Yeah, I think I, I mean I think I, I, I scoured the the studio trying to find every song imaginable that would let me go out, so I wouldn't have to repeat myself. I mean, it, it was. Not, not something I'm particularly proud of, but yeah, it's a, <laughs> smoking is it, it is a vice. Um, glad I quit. Glad I quit after 20 plus years. So 
Anyway, uh, I digress. There is my my first selection. It is Funeral for a Friend, Love Lies Bleeding, and I don't know. I think we're off and running. Yeah, so. no, I, that is it's one of my my favorites of all time. I remember, you know, and I'm sure we've all had similar experiences as Gen Xers. Tape trading, right? You you buy a pack of Maxell, you know, tapes if you could afford them. You get the nice one with the gold foil or something that looked really cool, right? Right. And and then you would give them to a friend who had a record you didn't have, and then you would do do likewise for that person. And so I remember a friend of mine, um, actually it was in elementary school, I think we were in fifth or sixth grade, and he had an older brother who just, you know, one of the reasons I got into the classic rock as early as I did was because of his older brother. You know, Steely Dan, Joe Walsh, uh, all that stuff. And Elton John was his favorite. And of course, I'd known Elton John for some of the, the you know, at the time, I think Empty Garden and, and Blue Eyes was popular around this time. And I started listening. I think I got his greatest hits. And then I said, well, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for a full album. And he said, oh, then you need Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. And I remember when he dropped it off at my house and I popped it in my little Radio Shack uh, stereo system and pushed play. And when this thing started, and then I was, you know, I was expecting lyrics and, it, and they didn't come, but I was so enamored by the music and where it was taking me. And just, boy, it's just a journey I still remember. And to this day, I remember the room I was in and how I felt when I heard this for the first time. Good stuff. Yeah. No, it, it remains my favorite album by Elton. Uh, it's, and, and two, it's his Hollywood album. I mean, right. not only do you have The Yellow Brick Road, you have Marilyn Monroe, you have uh, Robert Ford, mm-hmm. you know. Yep, yep, yep. Um, I mean, it's he and, he and Bernie, they outdid themselves on this. And I don't think, while they had plenty of incredible music still ahead of them I don't think ever, anything ever again compared to, to Goodbye Yellow Brick Road yeah, so. yeah exactly I mean I, I, I gotta say I'd make, I'd make a case for Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy which is a true concept album true yeah, another yeah. album that had, I think it had one single I think Somebody Saved My Life Tonight was a single um, but everything else um, most people most casual fans couldn't identify most of the other tracks on the album. And it really is. It's one of those that takes a little bit of time to kind of seep in because it's not as on-the-nose pop music. So I will say that that actually might, I don't know, I'd have to think a while between those two records as my favorite. But uh, yeah, between those two, he, he never came close. He did with individual singles, but as far as an album, um, and I hate to say it, some of Elton John's early records, uh, like Caribou, and uh, I'm trying to think some of the other ones in that area, had really good singles, but some right. of the deep tracks were, yeah, yeah. Right. I would agree. Don't shoot me. Yeah, that's another uh, one. That's, that's another one. I would say right. has a bit of filler. Um, but but yeah, I mean every track on, well every track on Goodbye Yellowbrook Road, I feel is any any one of them could have been yes. a single. Yeah. I mean that that is the true test of, you know. Genius and and the record that came before, I believe it was right before, was uh, Honky Chateau. Is right. another solid record. Too. Yep. All right. Excellent. Way to start us off. The opener and the opener. I was thinking about this. So what are we going to choose as the op- The opener of this mixtape is basically crowning that song as the greatest opener of all time. Well, I wasn't putting them in any particular order. But no, no. But I mean, when we when we do our... Oh, when we do the actual... When we, okay. when we come up with our final list and we choose the first song, that's a lot of pressure because we are saying that that song, whatever we choose, is the greatest opener of openers. Aren't we? Wouldn't you say the best for last... But it's an opener. Okay. So you're choosing an opening song for the opener. I see what you're saying. Hmm. Maybe I'm thinking too hard on this. <laughs> that, that puts a hell of a lot of pressure on us, Dave. I, that's, uh, well, I mean, it, but like you said, we're going to have to choose something that flows well into the next song, and so a lot of right. that will have to do with it, too. But we'll but get there. Now my brain, now, now my mind is racing. <laughs> you know, what, what, what actually, 
Uh, what qualifies as the greatest? Oh, okay. Well, well that, something, I, something to think about as we go forward. I, I, guess. I think we probably both start started with with songs that we feel could definitely be in the conversation, and um, mine actually comes from you too. And it's the very first song I thought of when you uh, brought up this topic, and that's Where the Streets Have No Name from 1987's The Joshua Tree. reason why I think this is such a great opener. So first of all, you have the classic album, The Joshua Tree, arguably one of the, the greatest albums of the 1980s, not only on face value, but on the, on the impact that it had in the music world, the ripples that it, it created when that record came out. And Edge, because um, the band is notoriously famous for writing together, they, they all share writing credits. All four of them are credited for every single song. And what happens is usually Edge or, or Bono or somebody comes up with um, a little piece of something and then they kind of bring it to the group, and then they just kind of build it around that. And so in this case, Edge was, was at home in his, his apartment and was playing around with his um, delay effects. You know, he's somewhat, Bono calls him the scientist, right? Because he was always been on the cutting edge of, of different types of computer-assisted sound through his amplifier. And he came up with this delay effect, which is what you hear at the beginning of Where the Streets Have No Name. And he was so excited. He was just running around his apartment. And there was no one there to celebrate with. <laughs> so he brings it to the band and they're like, yeah, yeah, this is really cool. And then they start to like, you know, uh, Larry starts to come in on the drums and realizes that there are actually two different time signatures in this opening to the song. And he couldn't figure out how to transition from one to the other. And then Adam comes in on bass, and he says, it's the same thing. And, and they could not figure out how to build a song around this. And there were several producers for Joshua Tree. And Brian Eno was, was one of the most notable. Brian Eno, and then you had, of course, um, C. Lily White. And who am I forgetting the third one? Um, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I just uh, drew a blank. Uh, who produced the? Um, oh well, oh well. Um, That's what, that, if you listen to this broadcast, you know that we forget obvious things a lot. 
Daniel Enwa. Thank you, Daniel Enwa. Anyway, Brian Eno uh, was working on this track, and he um, was so frustrated with it as well, uh, he almost erased the tape. They put down demos, and he was so frustrated, he went in there, he was about to just clear the whole tape. And I forget who it was. Somebody came in and stopped him at the last moment. But they kept plugging away, they kept plugging away, and eventually they found a, a creative way to bridge the two time signatures. And I'm glad that they didn't give up on it because this is a just an incredible song. And Edge kind of, you know, sometimes writers will write just with a, you know, general feeling or an idea. He wanted to write the ultimate U2 live song. Hmm. Much in the way that Bruce Springsteen, when he decided to write Born to Run, right, wanted to write the ultimate AM rock song that just blew out of your speakers. And this is what Edge wanted to do in a, in a live um, way. And, and he succeeded. Because if you have never seen them live, well, here's the thing. If you ever go to uh, get Rattle and Hum, the concert film oh. that they made in the 80s. Amazing album, yeah. It's in black and white until a live performance at Sun Devil Stadium of the song. And then everything turns color during that song. And you can really just feel the raw power that this has in, in a live sense. So Now, lyrically, uh, Bono decided to come up with uh, the lyrics. Actually... <laughs> He was in Ethiopia with his wife, and they were, I think, visiting. This is when Bono is beginning to get into the humanitarian side of him. And they're in Ethiopia, and he began to think about how, you know, back in, in, in Ireland, like in Belfast, where you lived really determines um, your status, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty much anywhere sure. uh, in, in civilization. So if you're living on the, the Ritzy Street with all the big houses, um, that's different than if you're living in the ghetto or in the slums. And so when he got to Ethiopia and the village was just the village and the streets had no name, uh, and he thought, boy, it would be really nice if all of society was this way, if we weren't you know, d- divided by different classes. Because if that were the case, then the people, like the people living in Ethiopia wouldn't be as suffering as much as they are. And so that's where he came up with this idea. And he didn't have anything to write on. <laughs> so he grabbed a barf bag from the airplane <laughs> and, and he penned <laughs> the lyrics of where the streets have no name on a barf bag. And he, he, he considered them not finished. He kind of just wrote down some of his ideas. Um, and when they got into the studio, they used it. A lot of times they'll use just you know basic generic lyrics and then they'll hone them later. Um, they never did. And he, and he regrets that. He feels like they could have been stronger. But I disagree. A lot of people disagree. They feel like, yeah, like you 2 lyrics are somewhat cryptic. But that's good because you can read in to a lot of it that way as well. So. Oh, yeah. That's how the song came about. Anyway, it was the third single from the record. It reached number 13 on Billboard, uh, following their number one hit. I still haven't found what I'm looking for, which I still can't believe was the number one song. That shows you how eclectic the 80s were when this, this gospel song from an Irish rock band <laughs> hits number one. But um, this was number three. And a lot of people remember it for the video. Mm-hmm. It's a clear homage to the Let It Be uh, film that the Beatles produced in, in the late 60s, where they went onto the rooftop and they gave a concert and everybody freaked out and, you know, tried to, at least the authorities tried to shut it down. Um, they kind of wanted that to happen. That was kind of their idea. In fact, they actually um, hooked up a backup generator so that if they cut the power, they'd be able to continue playing. Really? And they ended up going through the song, I think, three times. And the police did show up, and the police did try to shut them down. Well, eventually, once they realized, hey, this is you 2 they're making a video, we're all on camera, they did back off a little bit and let them continue their performance, but then they edited it to make it look like they were kind of shut down. So it's somewhat disingenuous a little bit, but there, there was an actual, like none of that was staged as far as the police officers coming and telling them to turn it off. Mm. But it was edited in a way to make it look like they didn't finally chill out and just let them play. Nothing wrong with that. 
Yeah. I, mean, I, I remember the, the video vividly. You know, it was... I, I thought it was genius. So, um, yeah, the Joshua Tree. Still, I'm, I'm not... I'm, I, I like you too. I'm not. I'm not the huge fan that you are, but for me, the Joshua Tree is their signature work. I oh, mean, yeah. It's still to this day. If I'm going to listen to you too, the first album I'm reaching for is the Joshua Tree. It's just, I, I don't. I, I'd be hard pressed to name any album, any rock album from the '80s that was so inspiring and so just. Well, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, it, it really. Influential, yeah, oh yeah. You know, I oh, mean, yeah. it, what they did and how they they turned the music industry on its ear, I I thought it was a brilliant work. It, it brought do. it brought alternative music into the mainstream. It yeah. was one of the albums of that time period that really did. And the interesting thing about Joshua Tree, it's it's, it's their American album. So the first couple albums were, were very alternative, very European post punk, right. right? Sure, um, very very good. But then, like I think, like great, great artists, you evolve. And the, when they were touring in the United States for those first three albums, they really got in touch with American Roots music. Mm-hmm. And they would go to Memphis and they would go to Nashville. And yep. they just really dug this stuff. And so that's why this entire album is a love letter to American music. Yeah. Oh, and, and then on, right on its heels with Rattle and Hum. I mean, it was, it was just a – it's my favorite era yeah, of you yeah. two, and then they do another 180 with Octung Baby which is their love letter to European right music and you know I, I've come to love Octung Baby but when I first heard it after you know oh, it after, after yeah. Joshua Tree I, I just I, I very nearly took it back I yeah. was so disappointed with my purchase but then it, it grew on me yeah you know, and until finally it was ahead of its time oh and absolutely and today Octung Baby I would say is you know one of the greatest albums oh a lot of people say it's in of the, the 90s of the 90s it's, yeah. it's in the top five yeah absolutely definitely. well for my second selection I went with a bit of meatloaf and I chose Bad Out of Hell which is the title track from the 1977 album of the same name
like all of Meatloaf's hits, this one was written by pianist composer Jim Steinman, and he said he wrote it to be the ultimate motorcycle crash song. Uh, the lyrics refer to a rider being thrown off of his bike in a wreck and his organs exposed. Uh, the lyrics go, and the last thing I see is my heart still beating, breaking out of my body and flying away like a bat out of hell. It's kind of dark, really, but it is a it's it's just a rocking good time. I mean, and it really sets the stage for an album that just oh, it it, it, it never I, the fun never ends. You know, it's just very cinematic, and it's it's just it is an album that you turn up. You know, and you it, when when it hits when it hits me every time, I, I just. I love it. I cannot get enough about Out of Hell. We've already established three records now that I would have on my, my Desert Island list. If I had to pick ten records to take with me on a Desert Island, those three would really? be on the we've list. Hit, we've hit three out of the yep, ten already. Yep, yep. Huh. Well, well, and there's more to come, trust there, me. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> um, the song, uh, Bad Out of Hell, it was very heavily influenced by the Shangri Laws, actually. Uh, their, their signature track, Leader of the Pack, which also features a motorcycle accident. Um, the motorcycle sound in the middle of the song is actually producer Todd Rundgren on electric guitar. Uh, Rundgren hated the idea at first, but Steinman begged him until he tried it, and he pulled it off, along with the subsequent solo in, in just one take. Uh, Steinman wrote this song for his stage production, Neverland, which he had been developing since 1975. Uh, the play debuted at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in, in D.C. on April 26, 1977, the Bad Out of Hell album was released in October of that year, and it actually contained two other tracks from Neverland, Neverland as well, uh, Heaven Can Wait and All Revved Up with No Place to Go. Um, Steinman actually trademarked the name Bad Out of Hell in 1995, and in 2006, Meadloaf sued him uh, when Steinman wouldn't let him use the title Bad Out of Hell 3 for an album. Simon is that because two was so bad? Well, <laughs> no, you know, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't though. You know, it's it's grown on me. But I didn't have two. Because Simon on didn't me. didn't work with them on two, did he? No, he did. Oh, he did. Simon, so three was the one. Three was, he wasn't working right. With. Okay. Yeah, Simon actually produced uh, right. Bad Out of Hell right. two, uh, but Desmond Child. Um, pretty sure it was Desmond Child. Which, which is the one that uh, I'll do anything for love, but I won't That's do that. Two. That's two. Okay. That's two. Right. Yeah, that and Life Is a Lemon. Uh, Objects oh, in the I figured that's so Jim Steinman. Not, right. Well, I shouldn't even yeah. ask that question. Objects in the rearview mirror are closer than they appear. Yeah. Uh, and it's, yeah. It's, so, yeah, that's solid. Yeah. I guess it's three that I'm not as familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, Bad Out of Hell, it was much bigger in the UK uh, upon its release than it was here in the States. It actually spent, that album spent 474 weeks on the UK albums chart. And it became one of the top five all-time best-selling albums there. Uh, aside from a limited edition 12-inch, Bad Out of Hell was never issued as a single in the U.S. But it was the first song many radio stations started playing after the album came out. And it ran 9 minutes 56 seconds. So DJs again, you know, it, it was one of those uh, go-to selections if they wanted to take a break and, and leave the studio for a smoke break or to use the restroom. Um, there's going to be a lot of that, uh, I think, <laughs> especially on, on my list. There's a correlation between long songs and great songs. Yeah, and there really is. Um, and it, <laughs> it really is. I mean, you just talked about the Desert Island. I would say a vast majority of my selections here, these would be my albums as well, looking through, um, with a few exceptions. But 
yeah no i bad out of hell it's just it, it it still is just an incredible album and everybody involved they thought that it was going to flop I mean, they really believed that it was going to be uh well they felt that it was a joke um they were trying to out springsteen springsteen you know with the, with the loner the wanderer the rogue who uh is you know constantly traveling he's and it's an album very much about cars it's an album very much about uh isolation and seclusion and introspection um but still i mean paradise by the dashboard light uh, among them they everybody involved thought that that song was going to be a novelty tune at best and it's likely it would have happened what turned all this around was that meatloaf actually talked with um Oh, what, what, I forget what production company Rocky Horror was with. Um, yeah, because he was in the film the yeah, year before. Yeah, um, but he, he talked to the, to the, to the, the company and basically asked if before the Rocky Horror showed in the theaters, if they would show concert footage. Ah, from, that's that video that we see. Yeah, yeah. especially for Paradise, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, and, you know, they, they agreed. So in movie theaters, if you got there early, you saw concert footage of Meatloaf performing of a, a, a number of these songs. That's brilliant. And that, that in the States, overwhelmingly, is what pushed Bat Out of Hell to becoming such a, a phenomenon, such a, a cult classic. Well, you mentioned Springsteen. They even, they even borrowed a few members of the E Street Band they in the did. recording of this record. Yeah. Uh, Britain is there. and uh, Max Weinberg, right? Weinberg, yeah. yeah, yeah. Both, yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it did go on. This album went on to sell about 30 million copies, give or take a few million, depending on who's accounting you believe but when it was released its success was really anything but a given i mean meatloaf was a very obscure artist the album was unconventional uh, nothing sounded like it on standard radio at the time and yeah this break of convention though it ended up distinguishing the album prompting huge sales figures and today it's still considered one of the landmark albums of the 1970s well it's part of the 50s revival i like to call it because oh, absolutely you know in the, in the late 70s uh, i'm not sure who started what of course any generation has nostalgia for the generation before you kind of see a resurgence of that so we have like happy days in, in greece for instance as far as on, on on film and tv but the ramones right were huge um, and, and so that was around 1976. You have Bad Out of Hell, which is a callback to, to those sounds. Yep. And I think it just, um, yeah, it all it all makes sense. So it all kind of fed each other in that little nostalgic period in the late 70s. It did. And right at that time, I mean, you had Brian Setzer, who was just right, right. coming up. You know, he, he they didn't really make a name for themselves until about 81. But, yeah, I mean, the, the 50s, it was a, there was a huge... Uh, push for fifties nostalgia at that time, but 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 it was its own thing. That's what I love about Help. It's it's still very much a seventies record. Oh yeah, just like the Ramones were very much a seventies artist. But the the chord progressions, right, the, the rhythms that was all taken from early rock and roll. Yep, very rockabilly. Yeah. Now that you remind when you were describing the song, it reminded me of another opener that I did not choose. I didn't think to choose it, but it also features a motorcycle accident that's very dark. Hmm. Anyone anyone uh, out there? Along with me here in my thought. Okay, I'm I'm trying to. Uh, I should. I feel it, e- it even includes a sound effect of a motorcycle, not a, not a guitar sound effect, but an actual motorcycle that crashes. Well, I already I already mentioned leader of the pack, which would not nope, which nope. is not an. It was, it was anyway. written because the band heard that I don't know if they I don't know if it's fictional or if it actually happened, but if I remember correctly, they'd heard somebody died on the way to one of their shows, and and they wrote this based on that news. I could be off on that. But. 
Detroit Rock City from Kiss. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, hell, I can't. <laughs> no, I no, just put no, you on the spot. Yeah, of course. I'm like now. I feel like I wouldn't an have idiot. got it either. Yeah. I would not have gotten it either if you put me on the spot. It just reminded me the whole motorcycle thing. Really yeah. No, I should have. From, yeah. Uh, from Destroyer. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wasn't even thinking Kiss. But that 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 could have been on this list as well. Could have been a great opener. Oh, it one is. One of their live staples. Absolutely. All right, your turn, sir. All right. Well, the next record, again, probably a desert uh, album record for me, may have, I don't know, I, I, I can argue that this is the greatest pop rock record of, of all time. Oh, I know exactly which one you're going with. And it's a band that that's just just huge, and, and they, I say nibbled at the corners. They produced great work before and after this, but this is where everything just came together and it's it's a very dysfunctional band but they somehow made it work and it's one of those early albums that kind of set the trend for later in the 80s that would just have a ton of singles because the music was just so solid and i'm talking about rumors yep 1977 from fleetwood mac and the opening song for that is second hand news So another one, in fact, have we, not, uh, Streets Have No Name was a single. The other three so far have not been singles that Correct. we've discussed. So yeah. this was not a single. But um, many, like, like many of the other compositions written by Lindsey Buckingham during this period, um, the song deals with the breakup with bandmate Stevie Nicks. So if you took all the songs that Stevie Nicks wrote about the breakup and Lindsey Buckingham, you probably could have a whole discography just there, right? Uh, in fact, he withheld the lyrics from the band until the time to lay down the vocals because he didn't want to get into a fight with Stevie Nicks about this. And, and essentially, it, the song is about how he is able to have moved on to other women. Uh, back when we were in high school, we used to make, remember Black Day on Valentine's oh, Day? Oh, yeah, yeah. And we'd celebrate all the women that dumped us, or girls <laughs> that dumped us. And we had all sorts, we'd make a mixtape, a breakup song, yep, right? every year. And, uh, and then this was one, this, this is a kind of an FU, guess what, I've moved on. But there's a certain amount of, of, of subtext in it that says he really hasn't moved on. At least that's what I, I feel. Oh, I've already, you know? I've, I've always picked up on He's that. trying to talk yeah. himself into having moved on. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Being confident about that. Um, the rhythm itself is, is almost disco tinged, right? That This is another part in rock when you saw artists experimenting with, with the, uh, with the um, disco. Some more than others. You know, Elton John had a horrible all disco album with Victim of Love. Uh, uh, yeah. Kiss had uh, I Was Made for Loving You, which is catchy, but kitschy, right? You had um, yeah, like the Rod, Rolling Stones. Yeah, Rod Stewart. You know, <laughs> Rod Stewart. Do you think I'm sexy? Oh. They don't go that far at all. You wouldn't consider this a, a disco tune at all, but but the rhythm uh, it has a little bit of a, a tinge to that. And it, um, it also has elements of Scottish and Celtic traditions. Um, even using a chair as a percussion instrument. There's a, like a leather chair um, that uh, that's hit in the recording of the song. Is it really? Yeah. And although it was never a single, it's considered by many uh, critics to be one of Buckingham's greatest compositions. 
what I think is amazing is just how Buckingham and Nix were able to navigate this breakup in the infinite confines of, of a rock band. You know, that's 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 the story. I've yet to write to read a really good uh, biography about Fleetwood Mac, but now I'm going to because I'm thinking about it, and I think it would be fascinating um, and a great biopic too. But um, do you remember the, the the concert film in '97 called The Dance? They released. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. The live album concert film. All oh, right. it's extraordinary. The other day, I was flipping channels. And it was on, and I'm watching, and the song um, "Silver Springs" came up. The the Stevie Nicks um, song that was eventually, I think, released as a single, not originally, but the live version from the dance. It was released as a single, and it's one of Stevie Nicks songs about the relationship. And if you watch the end of the song, now part of me says this could just be theatrics that they, they established. Uh, I'd like to believe it wasn't. But at the end of the song, Stevie Nicks is singing and she is staring dead over at Lindsay Buckingham. Like with this death stare as she sings the song. She really is. And Buckingham just takes it, right? He just looks back over at her. He, he meets her glance, but he just continues playing. He's playing guitar. He's just playing the, uh, singing backup vocals. And he just takes it. And there's a moment of about 30 seconds where the two of them just have this stare off. It's almost like a cathartic thing saying, hey, we've traveled this long road together and we're fine now. But you know what? We've forgiven, but we have not forgotten. Great song. Great yep. song. Uh, see, now now you, you brought up Elton John's <laughs> to, uh, uh, Victim of Love. I, all I can think of is the eight-minute Tragedy of Johnny Be Good as a disco number. <laughs> I, I just, oh, that's painful. It's, okay. But secondhand news, talk about just barging into a record. I mean, this song is just, it's so up tempo. And again, for being, it's one of those songs that's a, kind of a breakup song, but it's up tempo. And it just, it just starts the journey. Yeah. Well, and, and, I, you just named it an up-tempo breakup song. That, that is rumors from, right. from yes. start to finish, you know? Go your own way. Right. Uh, I mean, there's so, so many. And it's just, but it is, without question, the I, I think the greatest pop album ever recorded. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I really do. And I... I it sounds I, timeless. It does not sound like 70s. And, and that, that's that's key. It, it just sounds yeah. like a, a timeless yeah, rock music. It, it really does. I mean, I if you don't know Fleetwood Mac, I think... Just the casual listener would be hard pressed to determine what decade. You yeah, know, yeah. You're, you're and, and it had to. so many. I mean, it was diverse too. It wasn't all on the same wavelength. I mean, when you have songs like uh, you have the chain, then you have songs like Goldust Woman. Uh, you know, you have very very dark songs oh, yeah. and very very moody uh, songs, and then like you said, just really poppy stuff. Right, and well, and Christine McVie's selections, Oh Daddy, Songbird, Oh, oh Daddy, song, oh, Songbird. Yeah. I mean, yes. that they, they are so wildly different from the the up-tempo, you know, offerings of, of Buckingham and Nick's on this album. It's it's just, it is. It's very eclectic. It, it's, I don't want to know. that. that uh, just, again, yeah, another just awesome. great poppy yeah. song. Just about a breakup. Yeah, extraordinary. You know, The Chain used to scare the hell out of me as a kid. Oh, it's a haunting song. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I, I can't really tell you why, but just the sound that, of No it, Daddy, both of those. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, Oh Daddy did too. But, but The Chain, there was something about the delivery of the instrumentation in that song yeah, that yeah. when I was very young and it, it, I don't know, it kind of sent, sent shivers down my spine. I, I have a handful of seasonal albums. I don't know why I, I, they're seasonal for me. It's either because I listened to them for the first time during a particular season and that's how I remember them or if the music itself lends it to that. But, uh, but this is a fall album for me. This is an album oh, yeah. that when I play in the fall, um, just really hits, oh, especially driving. Yes, with the with the changing, you know, the oh, leaves yep. and uh, yeah, it's just yep. Oh, 
can't beat it. All right. Well, we talked about, you, you just brought up that the longer songs were not singles, of course. Uh, my third selection was, it actually hit number four on the Billboard Hot 100. It is We Will Rock You. But, of course, We Will Rock You is never played by itself. It always fades into the, the you know, the, the timeless classic We Are the Champions. I'm going to throw them together. I'm going to actually put them together for the mixtape and have say to. that it is one song. You have to. It's, yeah. a, it's a law. So, We Will Rock You, We Are the Champions. Um, both were singles, actually, individually. Uh, but We Will Rock You, it did hit number four. It comes from the album News of the World from 1977. Queen guitarist Brian May wrote this one. Uh, he claimed the idea for the song came to him in a dream. Uh, he said that he wanted to create a song that the audience could participate in. And in the Days of Our Lives documentary, I don't know if you've ever seen that, the, the Queen documentary that came out, um, oh, not the soap opera. Oh. <laughs> not the soap opera, no. Because I didn't catch that one. Yeah. Um, now, in the Days of Our Lives documentary, he actually remembered a gig where the crowd chanted the Liverpool Football Club anthem, You'll Never Walk Alone, at the band as they left the stage. And Brian May said that he went to bed thinking, what could I ask them to do? They're all squeezed in there, but they can't clap their hands. They can, they can rather, clap their hands. They can stamp their feet. They can sing. And in the morning, he woke up and he had the idea in his head. He, he wrote, We Will Rock You. Mm-hmm. Uh, Freddie Mercury wrote the song that follows, We Are the Champions. Uh, although Queen did not intend it this way, the two songs are usually played together. And the songs segue together on the album. So DJs always uh, let them play, which is how listeners got used to hearing it. So again, that's why I'm going to throw them both here. At least on AOR. On the pop stations, they, they separate them. They did. But yeah. on AOR, it's always played Although, together. you know, I can't, I honestly, I don't know that I've ever heard We Will Rock You on the radio in and of, not today. Just by itself. Not today. Well, well, but in the late 70s, they, they were set. Because if you look on Billboard, I mean, they charted in different places on well, Billboard. Well, that's true. Yeah. So they have to be separate singles. That's true. Because We Are the Champions, I've, I've heard on radio by itself. Yeah. I've never heard of We Will Rock You. Just, hmm. yeah. you know, free free of the, the song that follows. I don't, I don't know. Um, we Will Rock You was released as a double A side uh, with We Are the Champions on the flip. Uh, since the singles released, the band has almost always used Rock You and Champions as a back-to-back encore, uh, with Champions closing the show and segueing into a tape playing Queen's version of God Save the Queen. Um, and, and, you know, on Queen's next album, they had another set of songs that DJs played together. 
because Bicycle Race and Fat Bottom Girls were segued together on their album Jazz. Right. So those songs were also released as a double A side single. Uh, the song does not actually contain any drums, which which is uh, I, I don't know that I knew that uh, before uh, doing a bit of research for for today's episode. Um, that famous rhythm came solely from the sound of the band, roadies, engineers, even their tea lady Betty. Oh, Betty got involved. Yeah, Betty, Betty was involved. They were all stamping their feet Good in for London's Wessex Studios. There, there are no drums in the song. They, they show it in the, the biopic, um, Bohemian Rhapsody, in, in a very small right. Yeah, sense I, I, how they came about. If that. memory serves, doesn't he get on like a set of bleachers in the film? And, and well, they're in the studio, and I think he is. He's just he's stomping. He's just okay. basically trying to demonstrate because, he, like you say, he wanted the audience to be able to participate in the music, right. and they don't have their own instruments, so he wanted them to be yeah. able to be involved. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Bohemian again. That movie. I mean, they play around the timeline a little bit, very much. As far as uh, some much. songs coming before others. Well, but. and especially with uh, you know his discovery that he had yes. acquired uh, right. AIDS. Um, yeah, because that. He did not know going into live age. Correct. <laughs> that, right. You know, he had acquired HIV. But um, nonetheless, um, you know, I, I'm i really torn on that. What did you think of Bohemian Rhapsody? As a movie, I loved it. Did you? Now, you know, as as an as a amateur rock historian, it bothered me that I'm like, wait a minute. Um, I forget what song it was. It might have been another one, Bites the Dust, or it might have been We Will Rock You. But, and, I, and I knew one came out and you know, was it 76, 77? The other one was right. around 1980. Yeah. And I thought to myself, well, that uh, that doesn't match up. But, yeah. you know, if you keep, t- move away from the particulars of that and you go with the, the performances um, uh, and emotions and, and the journey that Freddie had to go through in his life uh, sure. with his wife and, and, and beyond that, uh, and then, of course, the diagnosis at the end. Uh, oh, and from a band standpoint and the way the band... The same four members, right? Very few bands are like that. Um, right. And, of course, now they've replaced Freddie Mercury. But at the time, like you too, it was one of the few bands that the core stayed the same the entire time. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with everything you just said. I think what, what got me, not only the timeline, which which did bother me, but and Rocket, I don't, did you see Rocket? I Man? did, I did. They, they play with the timeline they there did, as yes, well. Yeah. But I think what was most disappointing about Bohemian Rhapsody is that they... They they tried to give Freddie Mercury a PG rated life. Oh and, well, and yeah. He he was most definitely an NC seventeen. But know? if you look so, between the lines at some oh, of the parties, it, it's there. It, yeah, it, it's, it's it, represented. It, it it's is. just not shown yeah. in graphic detail. And, well, and I'm not saying I needed anything or two. <laughs> right, right. You know right. that that's not where I'm getting at. I just I felt like they didn't delve quite quite deeply enough to to really you know show Mercury's. Just the the pain that, yes, that he yes. went through because uh-huh, he, sure. he self medicated. I mean, right. all of all of what he did uh, was you know just self medicating for the uh, the shame that he felt for being oh, you know a good a, scene, a, a good man. representation yeah. was the scene when um, with, you know the band's older now they've grown up and they're starting to have families and getting married and he throws that party right and everyone there just people most of the people that Freddie doesn't even know yeah and he's just trying to have the same old party that he would have had you know 10-15 years prior to that and the rest of the band is just completely out of place right right and one one couple leaves early and they're like yeah you know we've had enough we're, we're kind of maturing past this and Freddie like you say because of the pain wasn't able to do that at that point yeah. later on eventually he does he somewhat d- he does yeah so no that that was a great scene yeah all right. Well, that is my number three. We will rock you. We are the champions. So. All right. Well, my next choice comes from a band that I totally misinterpreted as a child, uh, not because I didn't ever heard of them in their music, just because of their name. I'm talking about the Grateful Dead. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, I was convinced, you know, a lot of what I knew about rock music in elementary school was based on T-shirts, <laughs> right? And so I would see Megadeth and, and, and uh, you know, Metallica, not, maybe not Metallica yet, but I'm thinking like, like, like Eddie from, um, here we go again with the blank, um, um, Iron Maiden. Oh, okay. Yeah, and you'd see, and you'd see these, these different, just almost like from the pages of Fangoria magazine, you know? <laughs> and I was always really, really scared of, of those bands, um, really scared of those bands. And for whatever reason, when I would see the Steal Your Face logo from the Grateful Dead, the combination of the name Grateful Dead and then the, the skull, the skull. Yeah. on the shirt, I just assumed that they were just another metal band. And then Touch of Grey came out in the mid-80s, which was right. their only hit single, and I'm like, what? This is Grateful Dead? Yeah. I like this. This is really good. And never really delved into their back catalog much at all until college, when you know a lot of people really kind of widened their music perspective. And I forget who it was. Somebody on our floor had a copy of American Beauty, the album American Beauty, and played uh, played Ripple for me. And that was like, wow, yeah. And so then, of course, I had to get the CD, and I popped it in, and the first song to come up was Box of Rain. Yep. And I knew that this was just going to be a classic record. You know, best known for trucking. This is one record, trucking, Sugar Magnolia, Ripple. These are all on this just incredible record that came out in 1970. And Box of Rain is just kind of this up-tempo number that starts it out. And I don't know, it's just the perfect introduction to me to Grateful Dead. And I would think it would be a great record to give to somebody who hadn't heard of them. This is what's in store with this band. You know, they're kind of a jam band. There's there's a folk element to it, very Americana, but there's rock and there's blues. And, you know, this is this is a, a staple of music that just because they weren't commercial and didn't have a lot of airplay, uh, they should not, you know, be ignored. The uh, the song was actually written by bassist Phil Lesh, which he wasn't, you know, a major contributor as much as some of the other members of the band. He was dealing with the mental illness, uh, or the terminal, not mental illness, but the terminal illness of his father. And the lyrics were penned by Robert Hunter, who kind of laid down his sentiments. So Lesh himself didn't, didn't feel like he could write um, the lyrics himself, but he expressed them to, to um, Robert Hunter, who wrote them down. And Lesh also sings on the track, which is a rarity. Um, hmm. Very, very few numbers did, did he take the lead on the vocal, but because it was such a personal song for him, he took the lead on that. According to Hunter, the, the term box of rain, and I've I kind of always wondered this, and when I was in college, I just imagined, I, I 
sometimes take lyrics way too uh, literal when I'm imagining them. And I just imagine like this, this like almost like, like a crystal ball, but a box, a magic box that somebody would carry around and, and pull it out at parties to show people where like it <laughs> rained in this box and he couldn't explain to anybody where he found it nor what magical powers they had. It was just a box of rain. Ridiculous, of course. Um, it's actually a metaphor for Earth. Okay, but ball of rain didn't flow as well for him. Just a ball of rain. And so for whatever reason, um, he thought, hmm, uh, we'll just change it to box. And uh, and it worked. The um, it also the lyrics also include references to some classic proverbs and other poetic works. The song became very popular during their live shows. And boy, talk about an epic band for live shows there's a there's a serious xm channel now it's all grateful Dead. i know yeah and most of it are just like bootlegs yeah and it's incredible and um it was the last song this is why it's really significant it was the last song the grateful dead ever played live was it really yep the last song it ended their encore in chicago in 1995 of course after that time jerry garcia dies and uh, various incarnations of the band would would form with various members under different names right still to this day but the actual grateful dead itself as we know with the name grateful dead on the bill um, ended with box of rain and so like many other bands that i delayed seeing live you know ramones nirvana um, here is one that I will never actually have an opportunity to see in its pure form, unfortunately. Yeah, my list is unfortunately very long with the artists that I put off seeing. Um, yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I really, in fact, I, I don't know that I mistook them for a a metal band, but certainly the Skull, you know, in the in the name of the band, Grateful Dead. I, I had never heard their music, but I was very confused because I also associated the teddy bears. Oh yeah, Jerry Bears, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm like, to me, you know, the death imagery and the teddy bear just didn't quite go together. <laughs> and then, yeah, Touch of Grey came out in that same year, '87, I think it was. Cherry Garcia, you know, the the Ben and Jerry's ice cream, oh, right, and I'm like, who the hell are the Grateful <laughs> Dead? You know, and still, I, 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 it was Greg Finland. By the way, I don't know. If oh you, yeah, Greg. Yeah, Greg. Yeah. Greg yep, was. Yep, uh, yep. I could see. I could see him. Yep, Greg was the one mind. on our floor that uh, he introduced introduced us to to the dead and Ripple to this day still stands as one of my favorite songs of, of all time. And yeah, American Beauty. If you're going to play the dead to someone who does not know the band, you start with American Beauty. Yep. It yep. is without a doubt their their greatest album. At least I think so. So, yep. no great choice. That's my third choice. All right, well, my number four, uh, I'm coming uh, forward in time. It's the first one uh, from me that was not a 70s album. It actually came out in 1987, and the name of the album was Appetite for Destruction. I am talking, of course, about Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses.
Now, Welcome to the Jungle, you know, it's a song about the seedy neighborhoods of L.A., really. Uh, it exposes the dark side of the city that many people encounter when they go there to pursue fame. And Guns N' Roses, they knew this side of the city really well. Uh, in 1985, they lived in a place on Sunset Boulevard in L.A. that they called Hell House. It was filled with drugs, alcohol, groupies. It was just filthy. Um, as a particular Jedi uh, was wont to say, you would not find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Right? Um, so Axel Rose, he actually wrote the lyrics for this song when he was in Seattle, uh, which gave him some perspective on the size of L.A., and according to Slash, the band was at his house when he had happened upon the riff. Axel introduced the lyrics that he had been working on, and then the band sort of just arranged it there in the moment. That was how GNR worked. Someone would come up with an idea, and one by one, the others would provide input. And in that way, everyone remained happy, at least in the early days of the band. Welcome to the Jungle came together really quickly, too. According to Slash, it was arranged in just one day. Now, in the summer of 88, Guns N' Roses opened for Aerosmith. Uh, the tour ended with a show on September 15th at the Pacific Amphitheater in Costa Mesa, California. At this final show, Aerosmith's road crew had some fun because they dressed up in gorilla costumes and they began messing around on stage when GNR performed this song. It was all in good fun. I bet they loved that. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> Axel took that yeah. kindly. Well, actually, you know, I, I, from what I read, Axel actually kind of got a laugh out of it honestly it was all in good fun and the bands got along great um, with Axel expressing his admiration for Aerosmith at every show uh, when Aerosmith took the stage that same night they had Guns N' Roses join them for an extended jam of Mama Kin which was a song GNR often covered and by the end of the tour Guns N' Roses was the hotter band Sweet Child of Mine had hit number one the week the tour ended much to the surprise of Guns N' Roses and Welcome to the Jungle it actually was released as, as a single a year earlier, and it, it just it went nowhere. But um, well, it was MTV that saved that because well, that's one of the clearest examples yes. of how MTV influenced music in the eighties. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, MTV was a, a huge help, and and it really it followed the success of Sweet Child of Mine as well. But they re-released it, and the second time, uh, Welcome to the Jungle, it, it climbed the charts. It peaked at number seven on the Billboard Hot 100. If I remember correctly, it was almost a negotiation. Again, this shows you how things are kind of tampered with behind the scenes and that a song can be popular not just... It's, it's because people haven't heard it, right? It's all about right. promotion. And I don't know the specifics, but I remember reading that, um, you know, they wanted to get on MTV and MTV said, this isn't really our style, this isn't our thing. MTV was famous for doing that once it got big and could be very selective on what it chose. Right. Yep. And some executive along the line somewhere convinced them to put it maybe on Headbangers Ball or, or some one of the periphery shows you know that, that played at night that was more genre-based. And it got a, such a huge response, they took a chance and put it in the regular rotation during the day and it just exploded. Yeah. And, and really the album sales followed. MTV, mm -hmm. more than anything, MTV really turned appetite for destruction um, into one of the, the best-selling albums of all time. In fact, it sold 18 million copies in America by 2008, and it was, for a long time, the best-selling debut album in history. Wow. Do you know what album beat it? Best debut album, what beat it? I, I don't. What? No, Cracked Rear View by Hootie oh. and the Blowfish. Well, that doesn't surprise me. Every, every single every, It was a law that you had a copy yeah, of that in college. I don't know anybody that didn't own Cracked Rear Rear view, yeah. Um, but until the release, until 2018, when when Hootie uh, finally passed it uh, at 21 million, 
Appetite for Destruction was the best-selling debut. Now, you know what I remember um, Welcome to the Jungle for, though, more than anything? It was the movie with Morgan Freeman. Um, it was Lean on Me. Do you remember Oh, that? yeah, yeah. We remember played Joe one? Clark. Yeah, Joe Clark. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Because the opening sequence of that film plays Welcome to the Jungle as you see the hallway of the school with, with the, the drug deals and the you know the assaults and the fights and it just um i i still remember vividly that that you know that scene with the music juxtaposed it, it just welcome to the jungle and it, it is one of those songs too that i never really knew what the hell it was about right. you know it, it it landed firmly in that category what the hell is this song about for me until you know really doing the, the research for for today's episode i never knew it was about la well yeah specifically i i, I didn't know like i mentioned earlier in the broadcast i i a lot of times took lyrics um literally which is strange for me because i, I loved poetry and but for whatever reason you know there are so many songs that like Miami 2017, you know, they're like sci-fi in nature. Oh, yeah. So a lot of times I'll hear something that doesn't quite jibe literally and I just assume it's some other type of um, world. But it, you know, it's funny on uh, uh, Paradise City when I when I heard that for the first time. And by this time I'm in middle school, so I should know better. When they said the grass is green, <laughs> I literally thought, oh, it's this nice little suburban town. <laughs> Not really, and it was, realizing it was a reference to marijuana. Yeah, yeah it, um, here's something that you may or may not remember, talking about bands that we never got a chance to see live. Do you remember? That we had an opportunity to see Guns N' Roses? Yes. It, it was after prom. It was after prom. I won. There was an auction. Yep, I won them. You got I, tickets from doing the gambling things. and Yeah. You, you won tickets. I won tickets to, G, to see GNR, yeah. And we didn't go. We didn't go. I um, well, it, But here's the thing. I, You know, it was 91, and by that time, Guns N' Roses had, they, yeah, they were right, huge, right. right? But I wasn't listening to... No, we were not hard rock. Yeah, at we that, weren't listening at that to time. That. Yeah, it, it just in a way they were kind of a punchline to us, which wasn't fair because you know looking back now, obviously there was there were a solid band, but at the time we just didn't. That yeah. wasn't our vibe. Yeah, I, I very I, I was very mistaken, but I associated them with the hair bands, right, which, yeah, which they yeah. absolutely are not. No, but at the know? time I did as well. Yeah, and and I when I won those tickets to the after prom, I mean I remember everybody around me was like salivating, right? So I I, I was like I. I could care less about seeing GNR. <laughs> so I turned around. I think it was David Toland. Oh, yeah. I, I sold him the tickets right there and then. He like handed me. A capitalist me, at heart. Look yeah, at that. I mean, he just, he, he pulled out, I don't remember how much it was, but he pulled out, you know, the bills. And I'm like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> just, and, and to this day, oh, I regret it. Because I would now, yeah. now I would give anything to see GNR in their original lineup. Because today I, I have nothing but respect for the band. I love them. But but then yeah did not listen to him <laughs> so yeah one of my one of my biggest mistakes is and, a, and I had appetite and I also prior to that I had appetite I also had the um it was like an EP that came out afterwards it was very controversial there was a song where he lies. says all sorts of yeah lies I yeah. think it was I used to love her but I had to kill Killer, her and then there yeah. was one where he mentions all sorts of awful derogatory right. names for people yeah and, uh, it did have patience though which is a yeah, be- beautiful is. Yeah. ballad but. Yeah, no, it was it was a very controversial album that followed. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, my next one. This this may also be a desert island album. Uh, I'm going with Bob Dylan and 1965 from Highway 61 Revisited, like a Rolling Stone. So fine, 
through the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you people call, say beware, doll. You're bound to fall. You thought they were all I'm kidding you. You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. Now you don't talk so loud. Now you don't seem so proud about having to be scrounging your next Some say the 60s started with this song, right? There was rock and roll music before and rock music after, as Dylan took the political writings of his earlier acoustic records and proved that the same style of verse can work over harder and louder electric guitars. Of course, the folkies hated this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was an uproar. Yeah, he got booed at the Newport Film Festival when he came out with the electric guitar, and you know they felt he had, he had sold out. But he unlocked the rest of rock history. You know, We talked about this before, how Dylan's kind of that touchstone for you know modern rock music and, and everything kind of flowed through through him and, you know and, and this this particular turn in his style caught the ears of artists like the beatles obviously influenced their direction um as well as you know bruce springsteen who talks about that a lot in fact i'm going to quote i don't usually do a lot of direct quotes but this is just a perfectly stated uh, in his autobiography springsteen said quote the first time i heard bob dylan i was in the car with my mother listening to wmca and on came that snare shot that sounded like somebody kicked open the door to your mind. The way Elvis freed your body, Dylan freed your mind, and showed us that because the music was physical, did not mean it was anti-intellectual. He had the vision and talent to make a pop song so it contained the whole world. He invented a new way that a pop singer could sound, broke through the limitations of what a recording could achieve, and he changed the face of rock and roll forever and ever. End quote. Like, that's... It's, it's perfectly stated. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah Dylan... He really was the the next evolutionary step. I mean, I I don't know that I would credit Elvis solely in the way that Springsteen does here, but uh, I'd probably go Chuck Berry before Elvis. But he is right. I mean, what Dylan does, you know, just he 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 made it accessible, and he talked about things that mattered. Right. And and that was something that was wholly new and. I mean, it started before he went electric. You know, the times they are changing. No, but it was the combination of the lyrics from the earlier stuff. True. With with the rock yeah. sound, the harder the electric guitars and the, and the harder music. Yeah. No, it was no. the marriage of the two because all the intellectual stuff, most of the intellectual stuff prior to this was 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 soft, you know, mellow, you know, and it was and, and rock was all about what sex, drugs. And, and itself, yeah, I don't know. The, and, and the party, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and Dylan was the one that said, you know what, like, like Springsteen said, you know, we can talk about important things in, in music, um, even, even harder music and party music. So, yeah. Um, the song is exactly six minutes long, usually too long for airplay, which we've already talked about today. Um, but the song was so popular with listeners, the radio stations began to play it in its entirety. The single peaked at number two on Billboard, kept out of the top spot by 
of course, the Beatles with mm-hmm. help. Uh, but once his influence became clear, it flew to the top of the rock critics list, including the distinction of being named the number one greatest song of the rock era by Rolling Stone magazine. Even the handwritten lyrics made the news. They sold for $2 million, a world record. Yeah, that is crazy. Wow. $2 million. So that, that whole record, you know, we talked about the Desert Island records. I think this one would have to be one as well for me. I mean, there are several from Dylan I would choose, but this one, you know, special, the uh, Highway 61 Revisited. And it's true that with the way that that snare just kind of kicks the whole thing off. But I just love that 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 visual, right, that Springsteen presents of just kicking the door down. Yeah. No, it's to your mind. Very, very well written there by, by the boss. Yeah. I, this song, too, it... It not only brought the the politics into, into rock music, but it actually opened the floodgates because after this song, all artists felt that they were free to comment on the political landscape. Right, right. Uh, Sam Cooke, who I, I love, still my favorite vocalist of all time, he was still singing you know soulful ballads until this song came out. This is the song that encouraged him to write A Change Is Gonna Come. And yeah, they featured that in the movie. Uh, did you see the movie? It was with a... It was Sam Cooke. There were like four icons that were in the the same evening hanging out together. And I think it was Malcolm X. Was it Sam Cooke? And who else? Probably Muhammad. Jim Brown. Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali. Yes. Um, No, what what movie are you? Oh, go out to look at the title. It was really, really well done. Okay. And there's there's a scene where Malcolm X is basically getting on. Uh, Sam Cooke for not for not being a little more expressive in his political views and, and, and plays this song as an example. So look what Dylan's doing. You, you can do it. No, I have never yeah, seen this. Yeah, movie. I, I want to see this movie very I badly. Have, now. I will have to look it up. Um, yeah, to my knowledge, I wasn't even aware there is. It certainly can't be a Sam Cooke bio, bi, biopic because I'm not familiar with it. It all, all takes place like in that one evening. Okay. Um, but yeah. yeah, you know the danger of. We we were introduced to a lot of music with the greatest hits package, which mm-hmm. it's a good way. It's a good way to introduce yourself to an artist. But if it's it takes everything out of context, right? Oh, absolutely. It puts all the different eras together. And now sometimes greatest hits albums are in order, in chronological order. So that's a little bit more helpful. But um, a lot of times they're not. And and with Dylan's, you know, I I didn't know that this song was as important as it was because it was mixed in with all of the other really important songs before and after it. Um, and so it was just kind of another great song. But once I kind of realized, you know, the chronology and the discography of Dylan and got into hearing what other artists like Springsteen told about the sound, it just makes perfect sense. But we're out of context, right? We're 20 years oh, after that. Absolutely. And so yeah. just like I've used the example, right, of my dad always saying how just everything changed after the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan. Um we don't understand that because we didn't know what it was like before to hear this new music coming over our airwaves, right? Absolutely, yeah. Very true. All right, here, the name of the movie is called One Night in Miami. One Night in Miami. When One Night come, in Miami. When did it come out? Um, 2021, so it's fairly so recent. Film. Yeah, yeah, because uh, I remember we watched it over COVID. Yeah, Cassius Clay, uh, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown, um, based on the true story, uh, yeah. Uh, Regina King directed it, so huh. I enjoyed it very much. I know what I'm doing when I leave out of here tonight. Yeah. yeah. Um, what? What? Does, do you know where it's streaming? Oh, I can look. Sorry, the audience will patiently yeah. wait. <laughs> <laughs> where I look here, so. Yeah, that was a fascinating period uh, musically um, for Sam Cooke. He, I mean, because 
The other three, they're all members of the Nation of Islam, of course. Sam Cooke was a preacher's son. Right. He never converted to, to Islam. He was very devout in his Christian faith. Um, but the four of them, they traveled in a circle for some time. Yeah, yeah. It looks like it looks like Amazon Prime might have it. I don't know if it's to rent or if it's just part of the package. But uh, I'll rent it if I have to. Yeah. Now, now yeah. my curiosity has peaked. All right. Okay. All right. Well, my number five song. Um, I went ahead and you know for all you know we've already made this correlation that the longer the song, the more epic and more classic uh, it seems to be, but then I give you now a song that clocks in just over two minutes. And it is by the Ramones, which should make sense. They never went far. They never went much farther than two minutes in a single. I'm giving you Blitz Creek Bop. this one is a salute to their fans it's about having a good time at a show but there are a lot of people that misinterpret this song and and seemingly think that it has something to do with with the third reich right yeah oh yeah there's a lot of oh yeah you know world war ii imagery well well, blitzkrieg of course being the german term meaning lightning war i mean the blitzkrieg was hitler's army and but in this interpretation you know the bop in the song is the march that the soldiers do and it gets pretty wild i i I actually went through and i I looked at a number of sources and yeah they have the soldiers standing in line going into formation getting into cars going to the autobahn uh young boys in the hitler youth you know being turned into soldiers and of course there is that one line shoot them in the back now which some people interpret as this being the song about the the attempted uh murder of hitler Mm. by by Mm. the german uh, forces, um, the Ram- the Ramones they have that famous chant, "Hey ho, let's go." You know, it's a big part of the song. They wanted their own chant after hearing "Saturday Night" by the Bay City Rollers, which well, that makes sense. It, well, it, it does. Yeah, Saturday Night, of course, has that that chant "S A T U R D A Y Night." And Joey Ramone he explained to Rolling Stone, he said, "I hate to blow the mystique, but at the time we really liked bubblegum music, and we really liked the Bay City Rollers." And their song Saturday Night had that great chant in it, so we wanted a song with a chant in it as well. Hey ho, let's go! Blitzkrieg Bop was our Saturday night. 
And, and that's what the Ramones are. They were bubblegum music set to loud guitars and, and, and just really fast playing. I mean, that's, that's I know. That, that was their brand of punk. Yeah, and, and I love I love them for that. And, yeah. but, but just the idea, I, I would just love to be in a room, a fly on the wall, watching the Ramones, listening to the Ramones, listening to the Bay City Rollers. <laughs> yeah. Because it's, the Bay City Rollers were the epitome of everything schmaltzy and kitschy in the 70s. And Yeah, but but they were also, like their song was based on early rock and roll. They were. And, and we've talked about this before, but the Ramones were really anti-progressive rock. They just felt like it became too excessive and became yeah. a clown show, basically. So it, it makes sense that, that their guilty pleasure would be the Bay City Rollers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Bay City Rollers, in fact, you know, they were the first, I believe they were the first band to really be labeled the next Beatles by the media. Of course, that... That didn't happen. Did not happen. <laughs> <laughs> did not happen. And there have been, you know, I don't know, God knows how many next Beatles have, have come out since. There will never be another Beatles, of course. But um, the songwriting credits on this one, they go to drummer Tommy Ramone and bass player Dee Dee Ramone. Uh, Tommy explained that he wrote Blitzkrieg Bop, uh, but Dee Dee contributed the title and he changed one line. The line in question, it was originally they're shouting in the back now, and it was Dee Dee who rewrote it to say shoot them in the back now. Um, he said for whatever reason to Dee Dee that made sense. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, This was the Ramones' first single, also the first song on their first album. It was never a hit, but it became a punk anthem and a defining song of the genre which was just about to enter its late 70s heyday. Um, the, the Ramones, they make liberal use of the stereo spectrum on this one. Johnny Ramone's guitar, which was highly distorted, is pan mostly to the right. Dee Dee's bass is mostly to the left. And, um, you know, we've talked, too, about um, the Ramones. They, they never really got... Um, they, they never received the accolades, the, the fame and the, the fortune that really was was due to them yeah no yeah. and and you've talked about green day mm -hmm. you know the green day was where the ramones finally just threw their their hands in the air and said we're done yeah i mean they had to, they had to tour their entire career and continue to make music just to kind of you know sustain themselves and never really saw the the monetary value of what they did during the time that they you know right were, were recording but we talked about like this is a perfect one to, to follow up with with dylan because you know if if like a rolling stone changed rock and opened the doors for more you know intellectual rock music when the Ramones played England that's like the famous concert that like launched a thousand bands right uh, every great British punk band claims to have been there that night and decided hey we can do that right because over there they're all this progressive music like yes you know it, it, incredibly difficult to play and if you're a kid with no music lessons and you've got a guitar from a pawn shop and you want to start a band you're not going to play yes mm -hmm. right uh, but here are these guys that are playing very simple three chord, you know, songs, very fast, very loud, very hard. And everybody said, I can do that. And that's kind of the whole idea of punk. You know, most, most punk musicians couldn't play a lick. The Go-Go's, we, we talked about that. They oh, yeah. just, they started as a punk band. They had no idea what they were doing. They couldn't yeah. play their instruments or anything. And so, yeah, th this song and this album um, w was huge in, in knocking down that barrier and, and bringing punk music to the, to the people. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, it... Their influence, it runs, you know, it's still being felt today. And Green Day, you know, Green Day may have, uh, you know, been stolen the, you know, the act, I guess, if you will, doing what the Ramones had been doing for 30 years uh, before Green Day seemingly had overnight success with it. But they actually, they've been very vocal about their, uh, you know, just their 
their inspiration having yeah. come in from uh, having come from the the Ramones. In fact, when the Ramones were inducted into the Rock Hall, it was Green Day that right. played this song live on stage in tribute. Um, but yeah, because the band never made good money, that's probably why in '91 this song piqued the interest of Budweiser and asked who asked if they could use it, and the Ramones were delighted. Yeah, please. <laughs> they, they were delighted. I'd <laughs> like um, to make rent next week. Yeah, there was no debate uh, in the Ramones camp over whether to authorize this song for commercial use. Uh, they were all happy to get the money and the exposure. And, you know, really that kind of launched uh, a, a series of commercials that, that and brands that seemingly thought the Ramones was the way to go because after Budweiser, in 2003, the song found its way into other commercials beginning with AT&T Wireless, Diet Pepsi, Copper Tone, and, and eventually Taco Bell. So chances are very good they made more money on commercial. Uh, yeah, but most of them were dead by brand, then. Well, that's true. <laughs> but the estate made more the money. The estate. Likely I, I mean, from, Tommy's the only, the only original member that's still alive. Is he? Yeah. Yeah, he is. Johnny and, and um, actually Johnny and um, uh, Joey died of cancer. Yeah. And uh, Dee Dee, I think, might have been drugs. I don't mm. know. Or at least the drug finally wore him down. But yeah, no, um. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, the first time I heard the song was uh, National Lampoon's Vacation. Oh, yeah. It was featured in that film. Yeah. In the backseat, the kids get the tire of Clark singing. What's he singing? Love for Sale or Mockingbird? <laughs> Mockingbird. Yeah, they're singing yeah, Mockingbird. Mockingbird yeah. is at that scene, yeah. I think so. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's a, and it's a great, it's an easy song to play on guitar and, and bass. The hardest part is, is um, you know, playing with uh, the downstrokes. You know, even Eddie Van Halen said... Um, he really admired the Ramones because of their stamina. Because if you try to play all downstrokes for even for 20, 25 minutes, which is what they're set, which is probably <laughs> the reason why it was only 25 minutes, um, because you're not giving your hand an opportunity you know, to, to breathe, basically. You're just constantly uh, working it in the same repetitive motion, and that's really, really difficult. Yeah, well, that's called carpal tunnel. Yeah, oh, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, that would be a nightmare. But that's how Johnny instructed them to play. Johnny said um, his two rules were basically string your instruments really low, which is also not the most ergonomic way to play a guitar or bass, um, and, and then all downstrokes, and, and don't look at the audience, and don't talk to the I mean, Joey would mumble a few things, but just keep your head down, play, and get out of there. Yeah, yeah it was a formula that worked. Yeah. Gotta yeah. love the Ramones. All right, you're number five. All right. Well, my next one here uh, actually came from a failed rock opera. A uh, failed rock opera uh, that um, was supposed to follow up Tommy. I'm talking about The Who, and I'm talking about the song Baba O'Reilly from 1971 off the album Who's Next. Thank you. 
The song falsely referred uh, to many uh, as Teenage Wasteland, casual rock fans. <laughs> I, I'm guilty of having called it that several times in my life. Well, I mean, yeah. if you don't know and you're new to the genre, it's understandable because that's the refrain, right? And most rock songs use the refrain yeah. to yep. title the song. No, that's why I thought the song was titled for about 20 years until I learned otherwise. Actually, the, the title refers to two of Pete Townsend's inspirations. One is spiritual leader uh, Meher Baba, and a lot of artists were kind of into the Indian thing um, d- during the, the late 60s, early 70s, and musician Terry Riley. And Terry Riley was kind of a, a minimalist composer that played around with different uh, types of atmospheric type music and, and looping. So when you hear that, that uh, ostinato at the, at the very beginning, which is one of the most recognizable intros to any song in the canon of classic rock, um, it, it, it's that influence from, from Terry Riley. Um, like I said, it was, it was written uh, with several other songs to be a rock opera after Tommy, but the project was eventually scrapped. I'm not sure exactly why, but many of the songs that were going to appear in that appear on Who's Next. According to Townsend, the inspiration derived from the aftermath of their 1969 Isle of Wight show, as well as their Woodstock appearance. Uh, referring to all of just the the trash left behind by audience. I mean, you've seen pictures of that oh, at Woodstock, right? Yeah, awful. Uh, oh, especially the, the the other Woodstocks to happen, the the, the disaster well, in the '90s and yeah. all that. Um, but not only just the physical, you know, wasteland of everyone's trash being left behind and the grass all torn up and the mud and everything, but the wasteland of 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 the young kids, many of whom were were dying because of overdoses and frying their brains and and so forth. And so the whole part of the song. Uh, we're you know we're we're all wasted. A, a lot of listeners think that's a rallying cry for for partying. You know that yes, we're all wasted. But actually, it was not uh, meant in that way. It was supposed to be kind of a like an ironic thing because people were literally like wasting their lives, um, going too far in the excesses of of rock and roll uh, audience participation. Um, the song originally lasted half an hour. <laughs> uh, but they realized we probably should edit this down, and um, they just took highlights of what was more of a suite and, and put it down in, into what is still a very long song, like eight minutes, I believe, something similar to that. It's appeared in numerous television shows, movies, uh, sporting events, huge one at sporting events. Um, you know, it's a song that uh, I think just about everybody recognizes, even if they don't know it's the who or what the name of the song is. And um, like I said, that opening is just about as iconic of a rock phrase as, as you can hear. Agreed. Yeah, I'm. You know, I'm not a huge Who fan. Right. I, um, I I respect them. I appreciate them. I've, I've never, never have I, you know, willingly, voluntarily of my own volition, put on a Who album or you know cassette. Um, not even Tommy. No, not mm. even Tommy. I mean, I I will not. I I don't turn the radio station when they're on. I right. just. But you know, I, I'm just not a huge fan. But that said, Bob O'Reilly. Is one of the greats. Yeah, oh yeah. I and mean, it is it's it's transformative. And you know, I'm surprised to hear you say that it, it was from a failed rock opera because the Who, I mean, they didn't stop after Tommy. Quadrophenia is just a couple of years away. Right. So what yeah. what happened? It, just, in, it wasn't working, I guess. Huh, who okay. Knows? Yeah. yeah, I didn't know that they had plans for a, a another opera that you know was scrapped. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, you mentioned yes uh, when we were talking the Ramones. Yes, is the uh, the band responsible for my sixth selection today. I'm going to go with Roundabout, which came from the Fragile album, 1971.
This was Yes's breakthrough hit, and it's still arguably their most well-known song. Um, but the band wasn't looking for a hit at the time. The album version runs 8 minutes, 29 seconds. It's another long one. But it was edited to 3 minutes, 27 seconds for release as a single, and that single climbed to number 13 on the Hot 100, giving the band their biggest hit until they eclipsed it with Owner of a Lonely Heart in 83. I don't think I've ever heard a 3 minute, 27 second version of this song. No, I know, because, you know, we would have heard it on, on AOR stations right. later that would play the full version. Ex- exactly. I'm, I would love to actually hear what the single edit sounded like for Roundabout. <laughs> because to me, I can't even... The song, I well, it's prog rock, of course, but it, it goes in so many directions, I don't know how the hell you cut that. And that, that to me is just... I don't know. I, I need to try and find the single edit at some point and give it a listen. I don't know if Spotify has it or not. Um, in, an inter- in interviews, uh, Johnny Anderson explained that when they first heard the roundabout single, it was on the radio, and uh, they didn't know they didn't know that it had even been released. Uh, they were busy being a band on the road, and they heard the edit, <laughs> and they thought that wow, that must have been a huge pair of scissors to edit that song. Uh, Anderson said it was just totally wrong musically. It actually worked uh, nonetheless, and fans, new fans, were, were, you know, climbing aboard the the yes train, if you will. Um, So suddenly, they were famous, and they had a hit record, and more people were coming to see them, which was great, because then they would see the progression of music that the band had actually been doing, and they'd see the band more for what they were. He said, but there were so many that were just waiting for Roundabout uh, because they didn't do Roundabout in those days. Uh, and when they did, rarely, it was the eight-minute version. So I guess there were a lot of times where a lot of fans walked out because they were expecting a very different sound from a very mm. different band. Interesting. Um, but uh, the lyrics, they describe a psychedelic country life with allusions to driving. Um, of course, a Roundabout is a kind of traffic circle that substitutes for a stoplight and confounds tourists who are unfamiliar with them. Um, we, they're popping up everywhere here oh, yeah. in, our, in our community. But I can't believe they ha- haven't used them more. I mean, you don't have to pay for a, a traffic light. Right. Um, and the maintenance and upkeep of that. You, you don't have to worry about head-on collisions. Um, it just makes perfect sense. Yeah. I um, But I, I will admit, I didn't see my first roundabout until, oh, probably... 10 years ago, yeah. 15 years ago. I mean, the, the, it was a new thing to in, me. In our area of the country, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and of course, roundabouts can be confusing, especially the big roundabouts. I'm, I'm always, remember, well, here we go with <laughs> vacation Europe, again. Now European vacation. European vacation, Maybe we can yeah. allude to all of them, yeah. all four of them, at some point in the broadcast. <laughs> yeah. um, just Clark Griswold, you know, Big Ben, there it is. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, nonetheless, uh, the, the song... Um, it's, it's literally about driving through the country as they're trying to make it home uh, finally after being on the road. 24 hours before my love, you'll see. I'll be there with it. I'll be there with you. You know, that was written for um, Anderson's wife, Jennifer, at the time. They were 24 hours away from home and he was, you know, counting the hours until he could be with her. Uh, Roundabout is really just a happy song, you know, about driving home after being on the road. That's all it is. And traffic patterns, they don't always make for the most poetic lyrics, <laughs> but the word roundabout sings very well, and it fits with the theme of the song. And um, yeah, John Anderson said when he came to a roundabout in Scotland, he knew that he was almost home. So there is the 
the true essence of the song. Um, Roundabout is also a great example of a songwriting technique called deceptive cadence, which means putting a note or a chord where it's not expected. Um, you know, even though all the indications lead you to expect a certain outcome, the writer or arranger intentionally surprises you by going someplace else musically. Oh, that's yes, and that, that's the story of yes. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, credit the Beatles. I think they probably were the first to actually experiment with this. A Day in the Life. Oh, yeah. You know, with that, you know, being the obvious first real example. Uh, the lake mentioned in the song is Loch Ness, uh, which John Anderson saw when he was riding through Scotland. I assume he did not see Nessie because she did not make it into the song. Um... And, of course, that odd sound at the beginning of this song. I always wondered about that. It is actually a piano being played backwards. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's a recorded uh, track of a piano being uh, back, backtracked, back, back, back-masked, backtracked. Um, Reversed, yeah. Uh, yeah, both words work, I, I suppose. Uh, their engineer, Eddie Offord, he spent a lot of time stringing up tape the wrong way and picking out just the right notes to make it work. So... Um, there you go. I, I, I love this song. I'm, I'm not a prog rock fan, as I've already stated. Yes gets a bit of a free pass because there's, there's just something about the, the jazz influence. There's, a, there's a, a lot of experimentation, a lot of improvisation. To, yes. and, and the odd chords and, and right. are also a very yeah. jazz thing. So, I mean, to me, being a huge jazz fan, I, I don't know, I, I can... I can find a connection to this music in ways I don't to a lot of other prog bands. Um, but this song, especially, I mean, well, hell, I'm an anime fan. Anybody out there who watches anime, you know this was uh, the closing song to a season of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, nonetheless, um, which even got my kids into Yes. Uh, my boys, 19 and 22, the anime fans, they, they thrill to the sound of yes now having been introduced to the band in that way so. I'm kind of the opposite I'm kind of like where you are with the who with yes like I respect obviously what they've done They're incredible musicians incredible discography never made an emotional connection with them hmm. um, I'm more along the lines of really genesis of the, the, the prog rock that I like or, or Rush and and some of those bands that have right. really you know kind of have one foot in, in prog and one foot in pop yeah um, yes just yeah no it's weird and some bands are like that I can't say exactly why maybe that's the same thing with you and the who you know it's all good it's all stuff that should be in your wheelhouse but it just isn't isn't hitting emotionally for you yeah. well and you know there are a lot of bands like that for me Pink Floyd yeah I mean I, I you know people are we might we might lose listeners for me saying for admitting this I am not a huge Pink Floyd fan oh, see I love I can't I mean, get enough Pink Floyd I, I'll now they I have but on the turntable mm-hmm. I, I will you know I have actually of my own will played Pink Floyd, <laughs> but um, yeah, I to me it's 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 otherworldly, it's ethereal. I mean, certainly if you know if you're under the influence, I'm sure Pink Floyd is you know you. But you don't have to be. You go to no, <laughs> no, you don't. Um, but I'm sure any listeners out there that that do, I mean, they they've thrilled that they've you know lived the experience of Pink Floyd and The Wall, one of the greatest cult films of all time. I, I love it, but. Yeah, just not a huge. Pink I mean, some Floyd of earlier Pink Floyd, you know, there's a little bit out there. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Especially if you're expecting what you described, you know, in their later records with "Wish You Were Here" and "Dark Side of the Moon," because um, I remember, you know, hearing clips from "Dark Side of the Moon" and and wanted to get into Pink Floyd, and I was big on going through the bargain bins at uh, like you know at always. the Kmart or whatever, and yep. you could get cassettes for like two, three dollars. You know, of course that was because <laughs> they were the ones that that didn't sell very well. And so it was a double record. It was Saucer Full of Secrets and Pipers at the Gates of Dawn, two of their, their early records. And uh, I was expecting Dark Side of the Moon. 
And I'm just like, not what you got. What is this? <laughs> like bicycle came on. I'm like, now I now I appreciate it for what it is, and, and I understand it. But for twelve year old me, you know, that wanted uh, more of that that atmospheric type stuff, it just wasn't wasn't doing it for me. Right. No, I get it. Yeah, prog rock. It's it's hit or miss for me. Um, and in a couple of weeks, I do include a prog rock number for an upcoming podcast. But even that band using the song, I love the song don't care for the band i just prog rock is just i don't know i I like i like rock and prog is just i love the classical music i love the the classical but uh, you know just how it's integrated but it to me it's just it's so overblown and it's so i don't know and yet some of your favorite songs from billy joel and bruce springsteen are more progressive think about songs like jungle land and songs like uh, what's the, what's the one off of uh, the New York Street uh, New York City Serenade, um, Captain Jack, and and uh, even songs like um, Scenes from a Tiny Restaurant. Oh yeah, are, are progressive by definition. Absolutely, um, progressive doesn't necessarily need to be. It's out there and, and strange and weird to the listener. Yeah, it's just that idea of taking music and making it more symphonic with movements and uh, like a suite rather than just a single theme. Yeah. No, I mean, I certainly respect it. I appreciate it. And there are some bands that are hit or miss. Um, some songs I like, some I don't. And a couple of bands that I, I you know, absolutely I'll just adore. But yeah, as a genre, though, I don't know. I, I know it's, I know you are a huge fan. I just... Well, I know to say a huge fan. I, I have friends who are huge prog rock fans. Like, they're the real deal. Like, I just... I I like a lot of it. Okay. I can't say that. You know, I'm not I'm not into King Crimson. King Crimson and, or yeah. and, and all those really really I mean, those are usually musicians that really know what they're doing and they really understand music theory mm-hmm. and that's why they appreciate Prague so much because there is so much going on there. You know, I'm not that kind of musician. I don't have that kind of ear, right? Yeah. So to me it's all about an emotional connection, which sometimes is difficult to get um, we've talked about Celia Dan. You know I love Celia Dan. Oh, yeah. But Celia Dan, for some people, it's hard to become emotional because they're seen as very sterile sometimes with the recording. So, you know, I, I get that for, for some people. Now, Celia Dan does it for me for whatever reason, and, you know, yes, doesn't. But yeah. No, I get it. I totally get it. All right, your last pick. All right, last one here. Oh, my gosh, Steely Dan. <laughs> we were just talking about. And by the way, I wasn't applying the Steely Dan's progressive because they're not. I just meant in the sense that they are, uh, like progressive musicians, um, really highlight uh, expert craftsmanship when it comes to recording and writing. And, of course, they're very jazz-influenced as well. So uh, I'm just going to start where it all began. Do it again.
It's one of my favorite songs from one of my favorite records from one of my favorite bands, so it's hard to beat that. Um, it's got this Latin rhythm to it and these jazz chords supported by this perfect arrangement uh, of instrumentation and, and vocal harmonies. The lyrics, you know, like most Julie Dan songs, are somewhat cryptic. Um, you know, I, I thought, you know, I remember in sixth grade, our teacher used to play WHBC in the background, which was our AM station in Canton. And they would always play, you know, just the the canon of soft rock hits, basically, is what they would play. And I remember this song came on, and most of the songs, I just it was just background noise for me. But um, but that one came on. It was just, and then I'm listening to the lyrics. You know, I'm hunting for the guy who stole your water and stringing him up in the street and cooking you, hanging you by your feet, all those things. And, I, and of course, my mind thought it was this post-apocalyptic world where water was scarce. It's like a Mad Max thing, you know. Uh, apparently. Apparently not. <laughs> Apparently it's just about <laughs> making the same bad decisions uh, over and over again, which we all can relate to that. Um, so anyway, I, I, that, that's opened the door for me. I, I went looking after that. I'm like, okay, i got to find out uh, who this Steely Dan is. And my friend, whose older brother, had all the good music, of course, had all the Steely Dan records and, and made tapes for me, and, and the rest was history. So, yeah, I, I just I had to go with that one. I mean, I still hear that opening groove. I have it on vinyl, and, and, and it's one of the vinyls. Uh, records that I play more often than others, and I just drop the needle, and when they, that rhythm just mm. kicks off, I mean, it, and it just explodes speakers. Oh yeah, I'm yeah, Steely Dan. Now you want to talk about jazz infusion? Uh, there, there. Nobody comes close to Steely Dan with what they were able to do with the hybrid of music. Chicago, maybe a little bit, but not, not to the same extent. And you're right; people do consider them to be sterile. But there is such meticulous attention paid to the music, mm-hmm. um, which actually is very antithetical for being so jazz-oriented. Because jazz, I mean, the, the joke is, you know, if, if you make a mistake, you're listening to jazz music. That's, you know, the improvisation well, yeah, of it. Jazz traditionally rewards improvisation. Exactly, and, yeah. And Steely Dan, there was no room for that. No. But if, I, you, but if you look at their liner notes, I mean, the heavies of the jazz world... I will say yes and no, because from what I understand, you know, Walter Becker and, and, and Donald Fagan were the two, you know, core members of the band. Walter, uh, uh, or uh, Donald Fagan was lead vocalist and keyboardist, and Walter Becker was the guitar player. After that, like you said, they would bring in not, to, not just session musicians, but like actual, you know, oh, yeah. heavy hitter jazz musicians. I think for Peg, I think they listened to like several dozen come in and try guitar solo over, over the track. So... That's where I think the improvisation comes in, right? They're bringing in musicians and letting them just kind of improvise to the song that they've already recorded and laying that track over top of what they did. So there might not be improvisation in the sense every time they play it live, they play it different, you know, like a John Coltrane kind of thing where you start in one place and then who knows where it's going to end up that evening. I think the improvisation came in, in the recording of the record and how what sound they were going to come up with and which which of the you know two dozen guitar solos that we have to pick from, you know that's where the improvisation. So came it came in. in the process. You know the guitar. Yeah. Play, they, I think they basically said, "All right, here we go. We're going to play the song for you. Get ready. Drop in. Turn it on and just go, and just improvise to the track and see what you come up with." No, that makes sense. I've never thought of it that way, yeah. but it, yeah, they were more process oriented than product. Uh, so yeah, that no, that makes sense. It really does. So they, it's kind of like they took the improvisation and made it part of the product, but then they, but with well-defined rules, right? Um, the improvisation is, is kind of baked into what seemed to be a very planned out track. Again, I just kind of a theory of mine, but no, no. 
Totally get it. All right. Well, that's I, that's that's side A. Oh, what a collection of music too. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and we still have twelve more cuts, you know, to come. This is going to be one of the best best collections we've ever put together. This is a mixtape that I would throw on any day, all day. I, it's it is just a powerhouse of who's who when we're talking, you know, the great gods of rock and roll. So it's I hope our listeners will be happy with what we're what we're presenting. Yeah. Yeah. Um wanna give a shout out uh to Jay Callahan Painting, our our sponsor. Make sure that uh you look her up on social media. You can find her on Facebook. Uh if you need anything painted inside, outside the house, uh either way she is amazing at what she does and let her know that uh Gen X mixtape Alan Dave sent you. So I got nothing else. All right. Well, that's all for this week. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits in two weeks. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject, and we will see you on the flip side. Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time
to have a mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine There's an accidental slide